Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag, Jill's Pin, represents a group of migrants trying to enter America. And when you hear who our guest is and know what we're discussing, you'll understand why I'm wearing that pin. One of the hot button issues heading to the 2024 election is the border, specifically what's happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. From day one of the Biden administration, they have worked to make comprehensive, meaningful immigration reform one of their top priorities. Republicans have taken a disturbing position, though. Instead of working with President Biden on an issue that everyone agrees is urgent, they have actively undermined his immigration deals. And the reason isn't because they disagree with him on policy. It's because it's Joe Biden in the White House, and they want to make immigration a political wedge issue in 2024. Additionally, Republicans in states like Texas and Florida are continuing to treat immigrants inhumanely, setting up barbed wire, and sending migrants to blue states and sanctuary cities. Our guest is Beto O'Rourke, and he will enlighten us about all the immigration issues surrounding us now, and even talk about SCOTUS's Monday ruling that the Biden administration can remove the barbed wire that Texas put up around its own border. And as we record this, it's almost time for the polls to close in New Hampshire. So we'll ask Beto about that too. Beto is a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Texas. He also ran for president in 2020 after losing a very close race to Ted Cruz for uh, that particular seat. He is now running an organization called Powered by People, which is organizing people throughout Texas to push back against dangerous Republican policies. Beto, it is great to have you with us today. We are honored. Thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be with you and to be talking with you from my hometown of El Paso. So thanks for having me. And thanks for sharing about how beautiful El Paso is with its mountains. I never thought of Texas and associated it with the Rocky Mountains. I can't wait to visit you. It, it defies the Texas stereotype. We Not only do we have mountains, we're in the Chihuahuan Desert, which is just absolutely stunningly beautiful. We're connected with Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and we are not just an epicenter of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, as you also know, we're an epicenter of the current debate on immigration and border policy and whether or not we're going to make significant changes on how those who come to this country are processed, are admitted, are refused, are deported. So we are um, on the front lines of some of the biggest issues in America right now. And I'm just so grateful to you both for talking to those of us who actually live here experience it, and I hope understand it and can share our perspective with the rest of the country. Yeah, well, you really are the perfect guest for this, and we we definitely hope to shine a light on that and talk about what it will take to reach that meaningful, comprehensive immigration deal. Um, but let's start by talking about what's happening along the U.S. southern border um, and, and this narrative that Republicans seem to be constructing, which is sort of, you know, it's out of control, it's totally open, the people who are coming in are dangerous criminals who threaten our country, and they're you know, bring in drugs. You mentioned you live there, um, which is ground zero for this issue. So tell us what you're seeing on the ground in terms of how truthful that narrative is and what the daily volume of migrants is now compared to even, you know, four years ago or a couple of years ago under Trump. Yeah, I'll begin with where I think we can all agree, which is that what's happening at the border, um, what's happening with immigration in our country is unacceptable. And you don't have to be a, a Republican or a Democrat for that matter to agree with that. Um, the fact that there are people who are traveling many hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles to come to this country and are unable to find a lawful, safe, orderly path to come here to work, to perhaps ultimately become a citizen, to start a family, to um, grow a business, to do whatever they have come to this country to do is, is a huge self-imposed problem. In other words, one that we could fix if we had the political will to do so. Um, right now, Victor, we are seeing record numbers of deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border, especially in Texas. You have uh, immigrants, um, including a lot of women and children who are drowning in the Rio Grande River, who are becoming entangled in the razor wire, who are dying of exposure and dehydration out here in the desert. 
And so many of these want to come to this country to escape an untenable situation back home. That could be um, you know, political or economic failure. It could be gangs that are threatening to kill them or have killed members of their families. These are people in many cases who are trying to avail themselves of an asylum system that we set up in this country after World War II, where we swore to ourselves and the rest of the world, no longer would we turn refugees away as we did to Jewish refugees at the beginning of the Holocaust to meet uh, a fate that in some cases was worse than death. That policy and that system now 80 plus years later uh, has not been updated to meet the demands that we're seeing along the border in, in cities like El Paso today. You have a very limited number of asylum interviews that an asylum seeker can obtain. Uh, you have a lot more people than there are than there is capacity for those interviews. And so you have people who are trying to cross in between ports of entry, through the rivers, through the desert, and in many cases dying, as I just explained. Instead of meeting that with forward-looking policy that makes the most of those who want to come here do better for themselves, do better for all of us, we're seeing a really inhumane response, especially in Texas, where Governor Greg Abbott has set up drowning devices in the middle of the river that are anchored to the riverbed. He set up concertina wire under the water level in the Rio Grande that is guaranteed to ensnare and drown people who are trying to come into this country. And alarmingly, he attempted to prevent the United States Border Patrol from doing their job of apprehending, screening, detaining, and also saving the lives of immigrants and asylum seekers who are coming to here. And as you know, the Supreme Court in a five to four ruling with two of the conservative justices joining three of the liberal ones said that the federal government has supremacy when it comes to the border and the issue of immigration. Thank God for that. They got one of these right. But this situation begs for leadership right now. And we are really looking forward to President Biden and his team hammering out a deal with Republicans, a necessary fact of our democracy when you have divided government. We're going to have to work with both sides of the aisle to more uh, orderly, legally, and safely address a number of people who are, are coming here. But for Republicans who've used this as fodder to stoke fear and anxiety in the hearts and minds of Americans. Let me just tell you from uh, our house, which is you know not even a mile from the, the US-Mexico border, where we've seen so many of these crossings and apprehensions, we're one of the safest cities in the United States of America. And, and we're not uh, safe despite our connection to Mexico or the number of these immigrants. We're safe because so many people have chosen to call this their new home. We, we need to make sure that we look at the example of El Paso, how we've been able to maintain this order, safety and security, and ensure that that informs the debate that we're having in Washington, D.C., and hopefully the leadership that we see from the Biden White House right now. So I have to ask, based on what you've said, it, it gave me some questions that I'd like to ask a series of. Um, first of all, um, I, I seldom talk about, but when I first came back to Chicago into private practice, I actually had a immigration practice and did some pro bono work. Um, and at that time it had to do with Christians in Islamic countries who were trying to get out. Um, and so I really understand the problem, but in part the problem is how countries are treating their own citizens, which is forcing their citizens to want to be our citizens. So. America has an obligation to try to help countries be better so that we don't have this problem. But also as a person who lives in Chicago and is seeing unhoused migrants being transported here, and we simply don't have the physical structures to keep people warm. And right now, I mean, you were out walking in the mountains today and I'm huddled inside while there's sleet and freezing rain. Um, snow, and, and while I can donate coats, I can't donate a house to, to help people live. So we have to look at a overall immigration policy. And um, before we get to that, let me ask you about what's happening in Texas, because 
Greg Abbott last summer set up a string of buoys and barbed wires. Um, and as you said, the Supreme Court said no. Now, let me first of all say, how could anybody have voted that the federal government isn't the proper place for federal immigration policy and for international relations with Mexico? What what could what could those four justices have had in mind? Because and this goes to the uh, razor wire that is now on land that was preventing our border agents from saving uh, migrants who were ensnared. Texas wouldn't let them through. Obviously, that's hopefully now over and that our border agents will be happy, happy to. But, um, you know, they were interfering with international relations and with navigation of a international waterway, the Rio Grande River. Um, so aside from all this being cruel and an invasion of federal responsibilities, um, what do you think those four justices were possibly thinking? It's, you're right. You're 100% right. It should have been a unanimous decision. This is, this is very clear from both the Constitution and from legislation that has been passed by Congress going back to the very founding of, of this country. Um, you know, I think it, it really underscores how politicized and partisan the highest court in this country unfortunately has become. And I know that we all hope that over time, uh, perhaps in a second Biden administration, uh, perhaps in future administrations, this is cured to some degree by the replacement uh, over time again of radical extremist justices with those who are faithful to the Constitution and to the laws of, of this country. Um, but, you, you know, you pointed out just how extreme the measures are that, that Governor Abbott has imposed here in Texas. I'll add one other fact that's really important for anyone who's watching this who may say to themselves, you know, maybe I don't like the fact that people are drowning and dying, being ensnared in razor wire, miscarrying uh, babies, uh, you know, while they're they're tied up in barbed wire and in concertina wire. Uh, maybe I don't like all that, but if we have to be cruel in order to protect our borders and to stop this quote-unquote invasion, well, then so be it. I think it's important that everyone know that Governor Abbott has spent $11 billion wow. of Texas taxpayer money, and apprehensions and crossing attempts have not decreased over that time. They've actually increased over that time. So on top of being cruel and unjust and unconstitutional, this is actually not working if your goal is to reduce the number of crossings coming into this country. You know, as you alluded to, Jill, when, when people are fleeing uh, countries which they can no longer stay in, and all of us want to stay where we're from, by and large. I mean, some of us are adventurous and want to go explore the world, but we all love our home country. I wouldn't want to leave El Paso or Texas or the United States unless I had to, but if I had to... I sure as hell hope some other country would take me and my kids in. That's the situation faced by these migrants right now. The opportunity that the president has working with Congress is to propose fixes to our system that allow people that legal pathway that they are so desperately seeking right now so that they don't have to cross through that river or overland in the desert, but can come to a port of entry and follow the steps that countless Americans before them have been able to do. Right now, we just don't have the capacity to get that done. So more immigration judges, more asylum hearing officers, um, more capacity to have these meetings with these immigrants and their families as they come across. And the ability to do this far more quickly means that if we screen you and you're ineligible and you can't stay in this country, I'm sorry, but you have to go back to where you came from. We're a country of laws and we're going to follow them. However, if we've screened you and you're able to stay in this country, we'd love for you to be able to have work authorization so you can earn your own way. You're not a drain on the city government of Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., or the United States for that matter. You, as the vast majority of immigrants are now doing, are paying your own way and paying far more than your own way because we know that immigrants are net contributors to our economy, to our tax base, far more than they could ever take down in benefits or, or anything else. But those facts are not stopping Governor Abbott because in fact, after he was ordered to get rid of the buoys that were blocking the river, he put up the concert wire on 
private property, apparently with the permission of the property owners, but it's not stopping him. And now he's busing and, and paying for planes to take the migrants out. Um, so I, I don't know if it'll stop him. And I don't know if there's any logic to the, I mean, I'm appalled that four members of the Supreme Court could have seen this as anything other than a slam dunk that the federal government should be in charge of our immigration policy. Salut, Diane. Tu vas bien? Salut, Diane. Tu vas bien? Oui, je suis à Paris pour le week-end. Oui, je suis à Paris pour le week-end. Il est à la maison. Il est à la maison. He is at home. One in five Americans have learning a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you check it off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't help you speak the language. It's really true. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations with tips and tools that use conversation-based teaching to be approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. You'll be ready to practice what you're learning in the real world in no time. Jill, that sounds so great to me. And, you know, I'm in college right now and there's so many things I have to read and I'm currently an English major, but I really want to learn a new language. What has your experience been like with Babbel? So it's been so much fun that although you can do and sign up for just 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, I find I'm staying on it longer because I'm really enjoying it. And it has this little device where after they say the word in the right accent, you have to say it. And if they understand you, you get a check mark and you can go on to the next thing. But if they don't understand you, you can't go on. It's really reinforcing and wonderful. And I'm I'm sort of doing the easy way as you are, because I know you're taking Chinese now at college. I studied French, although it was in high school. And so I'm retaking French. And it's so much fun to get back to it. Yeah, you know, I'm a big foodie and there are so many restaurants in Los Angeles where you have no idea. I just want to say to the waitress or the waiter a word in that, you know, cuisine's language, be it French or Hindi or any other language. And I can't. And so I really think Babbel is the uh, app I have to try. Well, you definitely have to try it. And if you take French, maybe we'll do our podcast in French next time. Babbel even has speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. And I sound like a Chicagoan, so it's always amazing when it can understand my French accent. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold so far, and all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. You need to try it. And there's another reason to try it, because there's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, you get 55% off your Babbel subscription. That's right, 55%, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash iGen. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash iGen, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash I-G-E-N. Rules and restrictions may apply, and you can also start your language adventures with the link in our show notes. Victor, I know you want to ask a question. In that same vein, what do you think um, that leaves, or where do you think that leaves Governor Abbott politically in Texas? And what do you think he'll try to do next? I mean, there have been these sort of shocking instances where the Supreme Court orders Republicans to do something like Alabama. They order them to redraw their maps and they defy the Supreme Court. Do you think Governor Abbott will pull something similar or do you think he'll actually follow the law? This is really a, a dangerous way to meet a very legitimate challenge that we have. Again, I think all of us can agree it's a very real challenge. None of us is happy with the state of immigration or the U.S.-Mexico border today. The question is how we meet that, how we address that. And the governor, by trying to take federal powers into his own hands, is preventing the federal government from doing their job, so is 
you know, by definition, exacerbating the problem. He's making it far more dangerous for those migrants. He's doing nothing to deter uh, additional crossings. And potentially, Victor, he's provoking a, a constitutional crisis. And we've had some in our history, you know, and not just the Civil War, but you could go back to the 1950s in the aftermath of the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. There were many Southern governors who provoked the federal government in not dissimilar ways to what we're seeing now. In Arkansas in 1957, you had uh, President Eisenhower have to federalize the National Guard. He had to send in the 101st Airborne to ensure that those children in Little Rock could attend the high school there that had been, uh, you know, that now had to integrate because of the Brown versus Board uh, decision. You know, I hope it doesn't get to that. I hope that President Biden isn't forced to federalize the, the Guard here in Texas. I hope he doesn't have to send in federal troops, but I do want him to assert his authority, the federal government's supremacy, um, because when you when you have that breakdown, um, you don't know where else it will lead to. And I think the opportunity right now in, in the vacuum of leadership that we've seen on immigration really going back, you know, decades uh, and many, many Congresses and many presidential administrations, I think there are many um, people of goodwill and good conscience who wanted to do the right thing, but were probably unwilling to put all their political capital into it. We now have one of those moments where President Biden, who is such an incredible, empathetic leader, wants to do the right thing and is always willing to work with the other side of the aisle to get to the common ground necessary to move forward. I think he can use this moment to make sure that we can meet the needs of those who are coming here legitimately, lawfully, in an orderly fashion to improve this country by their presence and to secure America against anyone who doesn't match that criteria, who is trafficking drugs or is here under false pretenses. The screening that we need could send those people back and make us safer and more secure. But it, it it seems so apparent to me that he doesn't have Republicans who are willing to bargain so far in good faith. In the House, as you know, they passed the most radical immigration bill along party line votes. The Republican majority did. Absolutely unworkable. Would not pass the Senate. The president wouldn't sign it. And in the Senate, they're trying to, uh, Senate Republicans, strip the president's authority to do things like parole in to this country those migrants facing unique special circumstances who cannot stay or return to the country from which they fled. And the president's trying to offer them a legal, orderly, safe path to come here that also includes work authorization so they are not a drain on the public purse. I, I think what he wants to do is the right thing. The question for all of us right now is whether he and his team and the Senate Democrats, who I hope are negotiating in good faith with him, will be able to pull off a deal that improves this situation and doesn't make it worse. So let's let's talk more about that because you were a member of Congress and so it seems like you might be able to help us understand when we're dealing with an inhumane and ineffective policy and actions. Um, and I have to say, although obviously it seems to me the federal government has control of foreign relations and international relations, um, which doesn't give me much comfort should Donald Trump be reelected president. Um, but in any way, there is a bill that passed in the Senate and Johnson won't let it go forward. Uh, Biden sent it to them. Can you talk about what's in that uh, bill and um, whether you think that could be the answer? Because I think everybody has to at least admit that we need some comprehensive immigration reform if we're going to take advantage of our diversity and of the value that immigrants bring. So what's in that bill and is that the right answer? What we know of it so far, they, they haven't committed the ideas within this legislation to language that's been released to the public yet. But from what has been reported and what we gather from some of the, the key negotiators involved, there would be potentially uh, increased detention for migrants. There would potentially be a cap on the total number of migrants or asylum seekers who could be processed. And if the number coming in exceeds that cap, 
then um, they completely shut down, you know, all inbound migration or refugee or asylum petitions to this country, which I think is is unprecedented. Um, there would potentially be a revocation of the president's parole authority. And the president, as, as both of you know full well, used that to great effect recently in New York, which was inundated with uh, asylum seekers from Venezuela who were a drain on the public budget in New York City for housing, for food, for medical care, and otherwise, in large part because they didn't have work authorization. The president was able to parole them, so they're now here legally. They're not living you know, outside of the law. They're able to work legally, and they're now paying into um, the city government through city taxes rather than, than taking from that. So, so many of the ideas that are being proposed I want to find a good one in there, um, not only seem not to improve the situation, I think arguably they could make it worse. In, in other words, we could see the same number or even more people trying to come in here with instead of more, there would be fewer legal options uh, that they could avail themselves of. A few bright spots include, I believe, more asylum officers so that we can adjudicate these asylum requests in hopefully days or weeks instead of years, which is how long it's taking right now. I believe there is proposed more funding for more immigration judges, more capacity for law enforcement along the border. Those could be good things, but without increasing the avenues through which people can lawfully, orderly, and safely come to this country, I do think it is only going to compound the problem. And then, Jill, I, I'm so grateful you pointed out that Speaker Johnson, even though the package I just described, I, I don't think is going to be a great one. He won't even allow that to see the light of day. And he, along with other Republican representatives like Troy Nels of Texas, have said to the effect, I'm not going to do anything to help the president look good going into the November election. So if my intransigence means that the situation on the border gets worse, essentially they're saying, so be it, as long as it makes Biden look worse in the national media and before the American electorate. So, I mean, this is a complex thing, right? The last time we had comprehensive immigration reform, true comprehensive immigration reform, President Reagan um, was the president of the United States and it was bipartisan and he was working with a, a Democratic Congress it's been that long because it is that hard. But look, I am the eternal optimist, and I'm confident that if President Biden holds strong right now for the best possible deal and walks away, frankly, if there's not a good deal and through executive action addresses some of the, the opportunities that I just described, I think he will have set the expectation for within his first 100 days of the second administration to move forward on comprehensive immigration reform. And I know there's much... Uh, you know, about the, the president's poll numbers and some of the challenges he has with young voters. I know that if he were to be bold on this issue and offer those of us who really care about immigration some hope, both in what he does now and what he promises for this second term, I really think that could help him in November. So I know a lot is riding on this. I know the president's doing his best. Um, and we wish him luck. We want to support him in in doing the right thing. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of young people care about this issue so much and it could help bridge that gap. But, you know, like you mentioned and like we've been talking about, I don't think people are aware of just how willing this Republican House is willing to go in terms of sabotaging this president's um, agenda. So I want to ask you, given what they're trying to do, what, what Republicans are trying to do right now, what are some concrete steps that President Biden can take when it comes to addressing this issue, talking about it to the public? Um, what should that look like? And sort of what's the timeline for that? Could he get something passed? You know, like what's the, what's as soon as he could get something through? So one of the president's greatest gifts and, and what really drew him, drew me to him, uh, is this um, extraordinary capacity for, for empathy. And, you know, he does it one-on-one -on -one with families who are grieving or those who've lost a loved one. But but he can also do that for the entire country, or he can do it for parts of the country. And, you know, for him to be able to empathize with those in Chicago who are trying to take care of 
migrants who've been cynically bussed here by Greg Abbott left to their own devices on these slick, cold streets tonight in, in the Windy City. If he could empathize with border communities like El Paso or Eagle Pass or, or Del Rio, which are strained in some cases beyond their capacity to take care of and manage the logistics involved with tens of hundreds of thousands of people who are coming to this country, if he could deploy resources to those places so they're not shouldering this burden alone. And he's done some of that, but he can do more. If he could work with our hemispheric partners in Mexico, in Argentina, in Colombia, um, it's worth noting that Colombia, which has, I think, 50, 55 million people, has taken in millions of Venezuelan asylum seekers and, and refugees. Um, and they're strained beyond capacity. If we helped Colombia, then those who are going to that country would no longer feel like they need to now leave and come to the United States, which in large part is what is what is happening today. You know, the president who's done a remarkable job in much of the foreign policy of the last three years could really convene the leaders of the Western Hemisphere to say, look, we have a very serious problem and it's not ours alone or yours alone to address. We need to come at this together. The United States obviously is resource rich. Obviously, we have logistical capacity. Um, and, and obviously, we are people of goodwill. And we want to do the right thing. But we need every country in this hemisphere to do their part to lessen the burden on any single one of us. He could also, by executive action, uh, ensure that we have more capacity for these asylum hearings, which are such a logjam in the system right now and open up more appointments for these hearings, more opportunities for parole. So again, that there are these safe, legal, orderly paths. What, what anyone in America who looks at the border right now hates is scenes of chaos and disorder. And that is of course being exacerbated cynically by Governor Greg Abbott, who has spent all this money and made the situation much, much worse. Right now, what we're really looking for is for the president to assert that authority that the Supreme Court just reaffirmed for him and make sure that we get control of this border and do so in a way that lives up to the best traditions and values of this country, treating those who are coming here and have no other choice but to come here as the human beings that they are. So there's a lot that the president can do. And frankly, I think President Biden is uniquely equipped to do it. And that's why I'm, I'm so hopeful about his leadership, what he's gonna do right now in these current negotiations, what he can do over the course of the next 10 months, and then what I'd love to see him do over the next four years. It's so interesting you mentioned that because Victor and I met because we were both running as Biden delegates and we have, neither of us has lost any of our enthusiasm for him as the right person at the right time. But I, I wanna, shift to some other Texas-related stories, um, non-migration, non-immigration, but the Uvalde uh, report that just came out. And, you know, the errors made were really numerous and horrible. And the real question for me is, is Texas going to make the changes that are recommended. The report is lengthy and detailed and makes very specific recommendations to improve how you handle a horrible event like that. And yet it's up to Texas to take the, you know, it's sort of like you hire a consultant and they come in and say, here was your problem, here are the solutions. And then you go, yeah, oh, okay. And obviously there's an additional one, which really isn't a prime one for this, which is just guns in general. And, you know, why did this person, this former student have a automatic weapon that could do the damage it did? Um, but do you hear anything in Texas about what they are going to do? Are they going to adopt the recommendations? Are they going to implement the changes that are needed to protect against the next school shooter? I really wish in, in large part because I have, you know, three kids in, in the public schools here in Texas that I could tell you that Texas was going to make recommended changes. But so far, the evidence, you know, now, um, you know, almost approaching two years since the Uvalde massacre, 
tells us that Texas will not. In fact, we, we now lead the nation in school shootings and gun violence is the leading cause of death for teenagers and middle school kids and, and children in in the state of Texas. Um, and you, know, you pointed out that in addition to the recommendations in the Department of Justice report, we also have a problem with guns, which which wasn't really addressed in the report, uh, right. where in this state, there's no universal background check, which means you can buy an AR-15 from a private seller and never have to go through a, a check that could determine whether you should have the gun in, in the first place. There's no red flag law, which would have come in handy in Uvalde because the shooter was called by his friends the school shooter because he so often talked about doing something like this. And of course, a red flag law is implemented just for that reason. If, if someone is a danger to themselves or to someone else, there now is legal recourse to temporarily remove that gun from that person's possession so they don't kill themselves or kill somebody else. And we also aren't willing to take even minimal steps like raising the age of purchase to 21, which again, the shooter in Uvalde was 18 years old. If he'd had a few more years, perhaps that would have given us more time for intervention, for mental health care help, for whatever he needed so that we wouldn't have an, an outcome like this one. And furthermore, um, this state, our governor, has still failed to hold anyone accountable. Um, the head of the Department of Public Safety, our, our state police, who were on scene for more than an hour before they did anything to intervene in, in that shooting. Um, no one has in any way faced any real repercussions or accountability for that. Um, and, and likewise for local police and likewise for federal police. You had three branches of, or, or three levels of police law enforcement on site. Um, such a major failing. And, and you would want to think that given that it would have changed how we conduct ourselves here in the state of Texas. But sadly, until we change the people in power, we're not going to change uh, the decisions they make because as disgusting as it is, the NRA, the gun lobby, those who have a vested interest in the status quo are able to buy the access and the outcomes that produce the otherwise inexplicable. So I'm grateful to the attorney general, to the Department of Justice, for undertaking this review. I know from my relationship with the Uvalde families that it meant a lot to them that they were not forgotten by this administration and that the concerns that they had were um, reviewed, were um, you know, included in this final report and that the attorney general and his team actually came down to the, the community to, to meet and be with the families. So, um, you know, there's, there's some... There's something to that. And last thing I'll say is, you know, those survivors, those parents and the relatives of, of the two teachers who were tragically killed um, are are so involved in this fight now and they will be for, for life. And they, I promise you, will make this a better state and a better better country by the work that they're they're doing. It may take longer than we want it to, um, but their courage and, and their optimism, frankly, in the face of this tragedy should give us all some inspiration. Absolutely. And, you know, you wrote um, a tweet recently about in the vein of just how corrupt and how sort of inept the the leadership is in Texas right now, um, you know, accusing Greg Abbott of taking in a $6 million donation from out-of-state billionaires to keep pushing school vouchers scams to the conduct by Attorney General Paxton and the Lieutenant Governor. I mean, it's I think a lot of people hopefully are itching for new leadership. And, you know, there's an election coming up in November, as we're all aware. And I want to ask you this question, because you ran for Governor and for the state and for the U.S. Senate and came closer than any other Democrat has um, in winning. Um, Colin Alride right now is running against Ted Cruz and um, he has an opponent. I I'm wondering, do you think he has a chance and what will it take for Democrats to win in 2024 in a state like Texas that is so heavily gerrymandered um, and where they're trying to suppress the vote? What will it take for Democrats to win their up and down the ballot? It's such a good question because I think it speaks to a very unique political opportunity. Not only do you have a, a terrific candidate in Colin Allred, who's done a, a great job in, in Congress representing Texas, 
You also have a number of other people who are in that race, including a state senator, Roland Gutierrez, whose Senate district includes Uvalde, who's been absolutely outspoken on this issue and has really taken truth to power in a way that makes us really proud in, in the state of Texas. So you have a number of great candidates who are vying for the nomination, which will be decided here in, in March. And they're taking on one of the most loathed characters in American history, Ted Cruz. And to be clear, there's some people who really love him because of just how extreme he is. And, you know, they, they may think, you know, he's a total jerk, but he's their jerk and he's fighting for their priorities and, and their principles. Um, but, you know, if if his you know, terrible conduct in the Senate weren't bad enough, as you all know, in the winter freeze in 2021, while hundreds of Texans were literally freezing to death, dying in their homes, he fled to Cancun to the Ritz-Carlton with his family uh, in, in Mexico. Um, and then on January 6, 2021, he was an absolute leader in the insurrection attempt to defy the peaceful transfer of power from one presidential administration to the next for the first time in American history. I mean, that that guy has a lot to account for. And Victor, you mentioned we're, we're also conducting this election in the context of rampant corruption in this state. Greg Abbott taking $6 million from a billionaire proponent of school vouchers, which would drain public school resources in the state of Texas. You have an attorney general who has not been indicted once, but twice, um, who just recently tacitly admitted to his corruption. And then you have the lieutenant governor who took $3 million from the attorney general's backers, uh, essentially to end up uh, running a rigged trial for the attorney general's impeachment in the Senate. All of that has just happened in, in the last year. And so whether it's Colin, whether it's, it's Roland, whether it's one of the other uh, people who are running for the nomination in Texas, I really think given who they're running against in Ted Cruz, given the environment in which they're running, they really have a shot. But I should underscore that the other part of the environment in Texas is that we have um, the, the toughest um, voter registration and voting rules in the country that are targeted at keeping people that Republicans cynically believe will vote as Democrats, whether they're young, whether they're very old, whether they're black, whether they're brown, uh, from, from being able to participate in, in our election. So it's going to take some real work. And the group that I help lead called Powered by People is taking on part of that, which is massive at-scale voter registration. So we're working to register hundreds of thousands of new, many young Texans to vote for the first time in this upcoming election. And we really hope that can help make the difference. And folks who are interested in supporting or volunteering, our website is poweredxpeople.org. And you can sign up to volunteer to register people to vote in Texas. Even if you don't live in the state, we can follow up on registration attempts by text and phone. And of course, people can donate. So we encourage people, if they're interested in the outcome of this race and in what's happening in Texas to get involved. And we'll put the link in our show notes and we'll both tweet and post on other social media how people can help in Texas because your voter suppression measures are severe, your gerrymandering is severe. And yet I have the feeling Texas could be flipped. Are Democrats investing enough in Texas? And if not, what should they be doing in Texas to help flip the state at least purple? You know, we're seeing, I, I, this is going to be directionally correct, but in 2020, just to give you an example, in Georgia, Democrats, national and in-state, invested in Georgia voters, Georgia Democratic voters, to the tune of about $28 per voter. In Texas, the, the same year, the number was $7 per, per voters. Uh, per voter. So you're you're looking at, you know, um, a much smaller investment in a much larger state. I think we're three times the size of Georgia. So to answer your question, Democrats are investing in Texas. They're just not investing enough. And until we see an investment at scale, it's going to be really hard for us to do what we've seen take place in Georgia, Arizona, all of these thrilling outcomes that we saw in 2020, 
and in the elections that we saw in 2021 in Georgia. We want those to happen here in Texas. And there's every reason for them to happen here, but without the resources to fund that voter registration at scale or voter contact at scale or voter turnout at scale, it's just going to be really hard. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's it's that much harder. So we, we really encourage those who are interested in the outcome here in Texas, which, by the way, has 40 electoral college votes. And to the point you made about Biden earlier and your excitement in 2020 and the excitement that you maintain in 2024, in, in Texas, uh, the president lost this state by only five and a half points in, in 2020. That's the closest margin in decades for a Democrat in Texas. It almost approaches what Jimmy Carter pulled off in 1976. He was the last Democrat to, to win this state. But you know Obama lost Texas by double digits. I believe Hillary Clinton lost it by 9% and President Biden by five and a half. I mean, the, the closer we get that margin, the more Republicans are gonna have to invest in here, the less that they can spend in other battleground states. Yeah. And the more competitive we make this map. So Texas is super important. And again, I'm so grateful to you both for talking to those of us in Texas so that we can help alert the rest of the country to this opportunity. So maybe one last question in this vein of Texas and how we take it back, because it's so close. And one last one after that. Yeah, so my last couple, one after that, but you know, I, I hope that this election will will be even closer. Maybe you know, even Democrats will win because there are more young voters. I think there are people who are just really angry and outraged. And and you're such a good communicator, and you have that sort of pulse on Texas, which I don't think a lot of Democrats um, necessarily do. So I'm wondering, what are the issues and messages that you're hearing in Texas, and how do you think Democrats can most effectively address those issues with good messaging? As it is through much of the country, but perhaps nowhere more so than in Texas, abortion, reproductive health care, um, bodily autonomy, um, women's rights are, are front and center. Um, nowhere are they under greater attack than in the state of Texas. And you all know that, you know, our governor signed into law the most restrictive abortion ban in America. But on top of that, you have local Republican governments that are now banning women who are pregnant from traveling on their roads out of state. So if a pregnant woman, uh, for whatever reason, because it's her decision, her reason alone, wants to travel out of state to say New Mexico where abortion is legal to obtain that procedure, if she travels through the roads on one of these, in one of these counties, um, you know, she could be potentially locked up. So highlighting the extremism of today's Republican Party doesn't mean all Republicans are extremists, nor are all Republicans bad. There are a lot of great ones out there, right? But um, those in positions of power right now in the state of Texas are really making life not just hard, but deadly. Um, we lead much of the developed world in a maternal mortality crisis here in Texas that happens to be three times as deadly for Black women, because as you have shut off avenues for abortion, you've also just shut off avenues for any kind of reproductive health care, and women are dying because of that. So, you know, that issue is very resonant. The issue of gun violence, given the, the fact that, you know, more than a year after Uvalde, nothing has changed for the better to make that any less likely in Texas, that's front and center. You know, the, the fact that we're the epicenter for immigration, and we're so badly, badly handling this under Greg Abbott, $11 billion spent and now more people are crossing, not fewer, more people are dying. Um, these are great opportunities, I believe, for the president to contrast his successful leadership in the White House and to lay out the stakes for the 2024 election nationally and also here in Texas in the Senate race that you've highlighted. Uh, you know, Colin Allred or Roland Gutierrez could be the 51st vote on any one of these important issues in the United States Senate. And we all know that for President Biden to be successful in a second term, he's going to need a government that he can work with. So in addition to that Senate race, three of the most competitive House races in the country will be taking place in Texas this November. And so, you know, for those who live in, you know, California or, you know, Illinois or 
New York State or Massachusetts, and you may not have a competitive race in your vicinity or at the top of the ticket, and you may have done all you can for the president, we all want to do all we can for him, you know, it may be worth looking at how you can help here in Texas. And there are a number of organizations, including the Texas Democratic Party and ours powered by people, and we would welcome the help. Thank you for that. Um, that is as well said as anybody could. And that leads me to my last question for you, which is, what are your future plans? Uh, are you going to run for office again? We hope, we hope. Well, thanks for asking. I, I don't know. Um, volunteering now with, with Powered by People, uh, along with all these you know courageous Texans who are getting certified as volunteer deputy registrars, uh, which Texas makes you do in order to bring somebody onto the rolls, um, that, that's incredibly fulfilling. And as we've discussed, it's it's really on the front lines of the issues that we care most about and potentially could help us win some really pivotal, decisive elections here in the state that would do a lot to help President Biden in his second term and would do a lot to just help this country in, in general. Um, and then I just I want to see how I can be useful uh, and helpful. And so, you know, if that means running for office at some point, I'm open to that. If it means helping others who are running or volunteering, I will do that as well. But, you know, clearly we're all doing our part. The two of you certainly are. And the number of people that you reach and the information like the discussion we just had that you're arming them with going into what is absolutely the most important election of our lifetime. It really will determine the future, the fate, and the fortune of the United States of America. I just can't think of anything more important. So, you know, we, we are um, in the most amazing country at its most important, pivotal moment. We're so lucky to be alive and to be doing this work. So whatever we can do, let's get out there and let's do it. Absolutely. Beto, thank you so much for your time today. And, um, you know, we, we look forward to watching you in Texas. But if you uh, run for office someday, we will be the first to help you out. Thanks so much. Thank you both. Enjoy thank being you. with you. Thanks. Adios. So, Jill, we're in the midst of the award show season. Um, the, recently, we had the Golden Globes, and we are uh, just about to, I think, witness the Oscars, which is another big award show for movies. Um, and there have been so many movies uh, this year, it's hard to keep track of. And I really feel like, for me at least, I went, went to the theater for the first time since COVID, I think, um, this past year. And so um, it's been fun to go back to the movies. But I, I want to ask you, what are some of the movies that you've particularly enjoyed watching this year? So I think this was a great year for the movies. I think we're back to pre-pandemic times. Um, I have not been to see many of the movies in movie theaters. I have seen some in the theater and I have seen some streaming. And I, I, But I wanna first mention, if I'm not mistaken, last year, you actually were in the crowd at the Oscars, weren't you? Yeah, so LA, I, mean, I, I wasn't in the crowd in the theater, but I was on the red carpet and like they allow people to watch as the celebrities come in. And that was a fun moment. Unfortunately, I don't know if I'll, I forgot when the Oscars, um, when the Oscars date is, but I think last year it was spring quarter, which means that I won't be in college this spring quarter to watch it again. I know, which which sucks. And this year I learned that the uh, Golden Globes is held at the Beverly Hilton, which is literally five minutes away from campus, but I wasn't there. Oh, too bad. Too bad. I, it's one of my dreams is to be able to attend the Oscars. That would be so fabulous. But you standing on the red carpet and watching would be good, too. I would be happy with that. But for movies, I thought there were some really great ones nominated. Um, I think, of course, one of the things as a woman that I have to note is that um, Barbie, the director, who is fantastic, did not get nominated. And this is her third fabulous movie, Greta Gerwig. And Margot Robbie was amazing and outstanding as Barbie, and she didn't get nominated. Um, a lesser known movie called Holdovers um, not only got nominated as best film, and I thought it was outstanding, but the star was nominated for best actor. And it was an amazing, amazing performance. And it's a movie I highly recommend. Um, I, I'm looking forward to streaming or going to the theater to catch up on all of the nominees because they all sound really, really good. And 
if the Evanston theaters do as they have in the past, they play the um, short films that are nominated, animated and live action. And it gives you a real advantage when you're voting against friends for the, you know, you, you select who you think is going to win. And nobody knows the short films. But if you go to this thing where they play only the short films, you really can pick out the ones you think are going to win. And it really gets you extra points so that you yeah. can sometimes uh, really win. But this year, based on everything I'm hearing, it's going to be hard to pick who's going to get best film, even though everybody is saying that it's going to be Oppenheimer. Um, I don't know. There were some that I saw that I thought were really outstanding and worth seeing, spending your time doing something really wonderful. Yeah, well, I watched Oppenheimer. It's a really long movie. It's over three hours long, which requires some heavy time investment. And so is uh, Killers of Flower Moon, um, which is directed by Martin Scorsese and has some pretty good uh, um, actors in there. But there are some long movies this year. So if you haven't have watched you seen them, that one? I have not seen um, that one. I did watch Oppenheimer, um, and that was a marathon to get through. Although I really enjoyed it. I it was um, and it was actually filmed on campus. Oh, really? Which was, well, Flower, uh, yeah, Moon, so was... Flower Moon is one I really, really want to see. Um, mm. Although I believe the book is a much more accurate portrayal of what happened and that this sort of covers up the FBI's role. And so I, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and some people are speculating that that hurt its award credibility because it wasn't an honest portrayal. Yeah, well, there are so many other great movies too. You know, we've we've both watched May December, which I think uh, yeah. one of the actors there got an Oscar nomination. I really want to watch this one movie called Past Lives with Greta Lee and one other actor who I'm blinking the name of. But it's apparently this great movie about love and sort of the things about love that we don't really um, sort of pay attention to or talk about. Um, and you know, obviously, there are a lot of there are more movies out there than I think both of us have time for. Um, for sure. I was just going to get the list of Oscar nominated movies. And it's there's one thing says where you can stream those, which is really good. Anatomy of a Fall is supposed to be very good. Um, but so is let me just see what the list is. Oppenheimer, Barbie Big. and yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon, of course. Um the Holdovers, which is the movie I was talking about with Paul Giamatti being nominated for Best Actor. Maestro, of course, um, with Bradley Cooper being, um, was he nominated Best Picture? But yes, he was. And of course, so was she. And she was, yeah. Carrie Mulligan was amazing. Um, I did see that one. Anatomy of a Fall. Past Lives is supposed to be very, very good. Highly rated by the critics. Nyad, I haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to. Um, I I remember um, that. And I from the short part I've seen, I thought was fabulous. Um, hmm. May, December, I saw, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that'll win best film. Rustin, I have not seen. And other major nominees, um, Society of the Snow for Best International. Uh, there's a bunch of them here, but none that I've seen. Oh, one's named Bobby Wine. And I had an uncle Bobby Wine, but this is spelled B-O-B-I. And he was Bobby um, as a normal Bobby name. Um, and this is the People's there's Press. I don't know what that's oh. about. Obviously, because my maiden name is Wine, I'm going to have to watch it uh, for sure. Absolutely. So well, there are so many great movies. And yeah, 20 Days in Mariupol sounds like yeah. you got to see that um, if you care about the world order. Yeah. So I hope uh, everyone sees lots that of movies. It... And I believe the Oscars are on March 10th. Will you still be in school? I'm going to look up the date. In school, actually. If it's on March 10th, then I still will be in school. So maybe I'll apply for uh, tickets and uh, so I can maybe deserve another year. Awards. It is Sunday, March 10th. March month. Okay. Okay. So, um, I will. I will. Let, I will keep you all informed if I'm able to observe again. Um, and if there are any movies that you like or you uh, recommend, drop it in the show or drop it in the comments. Uh, let us know. Tweet. Tweet at us, and um, we'll. We're, I think we're both uh, 
always in the mood for watching something non-political. Thanks so much for watching this episode of iGen Politics with Beto or Work. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for a brand new episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you follow your podcasts, whether you have Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, really wherever you listen, we are there. If you want to watch, you can also watch at youtube.com slash politicon. That's youtube.com slash politicon. And be sure to like and subscribe there so you don't miss an episode. And so you can also see hashtag Jill's pin, which is always a great uh, thing to tune in for. Uh, So thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you next week.